Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2135 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week three of a 43-week series on the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style and narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Paula. Thank you, kids. I appreciate you all coming up. And those that will be watching online a little bit later, as a reminder, we do record all of our messages, and they are on our church website at putnamchurch.org or our Facebook page. So if you have a time where you're not able to attend, we do have those services recorded online. I do want to thank each one of you for being here today as we continue our series of the good news according to the John the Apostle. This message will focus on who is called the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptizer. Before we examine the one who announced the light of the world, I want to read John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. If you want to follow along in the Pew Bibles, it's pages 14, or 1646 and 1647 in the Pew Bible. And as always, I recommend keeping the passage open during the message so you can follow along as I go through it. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him asked, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one of you that you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that I might reveal him to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man to whom you see the Spirit come down and remain on is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testified that this is God's chosen one. Now John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer as we call him, is a somewhat shadowy figure. Most of us as Christians, or many Christians, could fit everything they know on him about him on a three-by-five card and still have room to spare. 
Clearly, he baptized people. That's why he had the name John the Baptizer. Some know that he lived in the wilderness and ate wild locusts and honey. Those interested in theology might realize that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. But unfortunately, for most of us, that's about all we know about him. And yet Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, I tell you the truth, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist. Yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The Gospel of John gives us actually very little information about this man. As you remember in our first introduction to the Gospel of John, John took a completely different approach from Matthew, Mark, and Luke on his version of the Gospel. Where he came from and what he was like as a person, John really doesn't address. And this, of course, is intentional in John's Gospel. Nevertheless, the lack of information serves some essential purpose for John, which we'll soon discover in this message. But we must look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke for additional details. Now, Dr. Luke, he was a physician, and he was interested in the humanity of men and women who surrounded Jesus during his life. Now, John the Baptizer was born an only child to an aging priest, Zacharias, and his postmenopausal wife, Elizabeth. The birth attracted the attention of everyone in the Judean hill country. Not only was it because it was a miraculous birth that should not have happened, but also because John was set aside from birth as a Nazarite. He was not to cut his hair, so he never had his hair cut through his entire life. He was not to touch anything that was dead, and he was not to partake of anything that came from a grapevine. No wine, no grapes, not even raisins. But even before his conception, John had chosen him to prophesy as the forerunner of the Messiah. Luke chapter 1, verse 15, he says, He will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or other alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. Now, John the baptizer didn't grow up in the palace court or even in the temple where his father served as a priest. Luke chapter 1, verse 80 says, John grew up and became strong in spirit. He lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. So John grew up in the dust and the rock and the scrub brushes of that Judean wilderness, in the heat of that wilderness, in the scarcity of everything, including food and water. And if you look at your bulletin insert on the side with the pictures on it, it has a picture at the top there of what the Judean wilderness looked like. This is an actual picture of the Judean wilderness, and this is where John the Baptizer lived. He probably stayed in caves or alcoves, and this is where he lived all of his adult life until his public ministry um, began. However, in that silence and solitude, the simplicity of those difficult days, John communed with the author of the truth. He lived by the foundational principles of God's kingdom, a standard that Israel failed to heed for many centuries. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which Christ repeated in some of his teaching, he says, he did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. And when John came out of the wilderness to confront and convict the nation of Israel, he was so different from the religious leaders of the day that people were used to hearing 
Most of those were in Jerusalem, away from the Judean wilderness. In Mark chapter 1, verse 6, describes John the baptizer as, his clothes were woven from coarse camel hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. Now locusts, we think of the locusts around here, but those were probably actually grasshoppers that he ate. Those are truly locusts. So while the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the chief priests, the scribes, and the Herodians were robed in finery and nourished by meat and wine in the, in the, the ta tabernacle in the temple, John stood in contrast with frugal living and leathery skin that was baked by the sun. His message was just as unadored, unadored and unyielding as his appearance. So the Sadducees, the Pharisees, those practitioners of that hypocritical religion came to him to see what he was doing in a showy pretense of maybe wanting to be baptized with a counterfeit repentance. But he would have none of it. This is what John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed. Why do you flee from the coming wrath. Prove it by the way you live, that you have repented from your sins and you have turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we are safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. And he picked up or looked at a stone and said, this is what God can make children of Abraham for, from. You think you're so special. The religious elite hated him. They would have killed him if it were not that he was protected because he wandered in the wilderness, and soon he was surrounded by a great multitude of people who came to listen to his preaching and to be baptized, who were genuinely repentant of their sins. And while the John the Baptizer was an extraordinary as a mere human can be, he was nonetheless just a man. Therefore, John the Apostle introduces him in last week's lesson, in verse 6, he said, John, or God sent a man, John the Baptist. Now, in our passage 19 through 34 this week, we'll show what made John really remarkable, although he was a mere man. The issue of truth was essential to the Apostle John, and he repeats it throughout his gospel, especially in the ministry of Jesus here on earth. In this first episode, though, with John the Baptizer, was challenged by the Jews, the religious leaders who ruled Israel through their temple in Jerusalem. Their principal concern was, what was John the baptizer's authority? Who has the right to proclaim the truth? But take note of the dialogue that consisted between those religious leaders and John the baptizer. In 19 and 20, they said, who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. 21, well then, who are you? They asked, are you Elijah? No, he replied. 21, are you the prophet we are expecting? No. And then verses 22 and 23, he says, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied, in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. In verse 25, then they go on. Well, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, 
what right do you have to baptize? The real question that they were asking is, who do you think you really are, John? And according to the world standards, whoever wields the greatest power has the right to determine what is truth and who gets to proclaim it. We certainly see that even in today's world. But according to the standard of Scripture, the only people worthy are those that come from the source of truth, and we should only listen to those who live according to God's precepts. Now, this strange-looking, ultra-dogmatic wilderness preacher was a mystery to those religious leaders. This man preached in the rugged hill country of Judea, and he claimed neither power nor worthiness. The thought of celebrity turned John the baptizer off. And consequently, we note the verses that we just read. He took great care to strip himself of all credentials. He's saying, I'm not that. I'm not that. I'm not that. He refused to make himself of any account, choosing only to clarify his role. He said, in effect, I am not the source of truth. I simply bear witness to the one who is the truth. Now, John fiercely denied being the Messiah, Elijah, or the prophet, but this wilderness preacher was indeed a genuine prophet. However, he was not the prophet. Now, having run down the known known list of possibilities, the religious leaders continued to press John because they just could not figure out why he was preaching and baptizing. What gave him that authority? by asking John if he had some other kind of authority, perhaps something they failed to anticipate. Again, John denied any kind of personal credentials. Nevertheless, this bizarre-looking man was very clear about his role. And the Gospel of John explains it very clearly for us. John, verses 7 and 8 last week, we, we noted that John sent, or God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to the light. And also last week in verse 15, John testified about him when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said, someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before I did. And then this week's passage in verse 23 As I read before, John replied with the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am the voice shouting in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord's coming. To avoid any mistaken notion that he was someone of importance whatsoever, John described himself merely as a voice. Not as a prophet, though he was one. Not as somebody remarkable that's worthy of God, though he was. Not even someone to be noticed, although he was noticed by thousands of people who came to him for repentance and baptism. Verse 27 says, Though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be a slave to untie the straps of his sandal. That was John the baptizer's mindset. He was not worthy to be a slave to Jesus Christ. He was simply a voice. And that's what we're called to be also is a voice. Now, John the Baptizer's self-description in verse 23 that we went over was drawn from a well-known prophecy, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, drawing upon a familiar image. When a monarch, monarch traveled, when a king traveled to a new location within his realm, 
he would send a forerunner ahead of him and saying, prepare the way for the king. The king is coming. Prepare for the king's coming. And that way, the townspeople knew the king was on their way. The forerunner would go first to announce the king's arrival. And then the city had a chance to prepare and their route was cleared of anything that would slow the king's chariots down or make his journey unpleasant, making sure there was no people that might stop him or try to kill him. The forerunner was simply a voice. He had no authority of his own. If the people chose to heed that forerunner's message, it was because they revered the coming king. The Pharisees were different, though. They cared more about their rules, their regulations, their rituals, and their rites. They established themselves as the religious authorities and jealously guarded this, this power. And we'll see that throughout Christ's ministry, how they jealously guarded their positions opposed to what Christ had to tell them. So they were disturbed by John's boldness. By in baptizing people without proper credentials, who would do that? Regard, of, uh, of regard for the proper use of the rite of baptism, only they could do that. And they were wanting him to follow their established procedures. But let me explain why the religious leaders were so concerned. You see, baptism among the Jews was almost unheard of, except it was a rite where the new Gentile converts to Judaism were ceremonially immersed beneath water in pure water as a symbol of a once-for-all once cleansing of sin before entering that Hebrew covenant community. It was supposed to be administered only by priest, not by some wild-eyed, locust-eating firebrand from the wilderness. It was intended only for Gentile proselytes, those Gentiles who were not Jews that were converting to follow Judaism. It was not for the Jews who were already born as Abraham, under the Abrahamic covenant with God because they were already, in their minds, God's chosen people. It had to be done in pure water, in the temple or the synagogue, not a muddy Jordan River. But these were artificial rules that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders had set up over the years. They asked him, if you are not the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize, John? But John gave the rite of baptism a new application. He called the Jews to baptism of repentance, saying, in effect, because of your sin, you are outside of God's Abrahamic covenant. Therefore, you must repent like a Gentile and become God, back to God for the very first time. And you know what the results were? They came in droves. He had a massive following of those Jews who realized that their righteousness was not based on that covenant with Abraham, but they're on their own repentance before a holy God. Nevertheless, John admitted, admitted that his baptize, baptism was still, still merely symbolic and quickly turned the discussion away from himself and the baptism to the one who it pointed to, the Messiah, toward the one who he had come to announce. After all, he was merely a witness to the truth, not the source of truth. He was only a lampstand not the light itself, and so should we be. We cannot know the precise location of John's ministry along the Jordan River, but if you'll look at that center picture in your bulletin, 
you'll see a little blue dot in the middle called Bethany beyond the Jordan. And that's what it describes in this passage where John baptized on the east side of the Jordan River where he performed those baptisms. And because the Jewish ritual of baptism was supposed to be for Gentile conversion, it did involve complete immersion under the water as a Gentile conversion. So more than likely, that's the type of baptism that John practiced. John likely chose a slow portion of the river. If you'll look at the last picture at the bottom of the page there, that's a picture of the Jordan River. Sort of reminds me of the Little Muskingum, actually. But it was a slow-moving part of the river where he probably baptized his followers. John chose this so he could immerse them completely. It was probably waist-high at that point. But that allowed him to immerse his followers completely. And the day following John's self-denial of any credentials and his relentless deflection of the glory from himself back to God, the moment for which he had been born suddenly arrived. He saw Jesus and identified him, not as the king of Israel, not as the prophet, not even as the Messiah. Instead, he proclaimed, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he proclaimed Jesus Christ to be. And that proclamation references Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 13, where we learn about the Passover. And it was also referencing Isaiah's messianic imagery in 53.7, where it talks about the lamb came for the slaughter. John's honesty was startling. On one hand, he freely talks about receiving direct revelation from the hand of God. Those which is only privileged for privileged reserved for prophets. But on the other hand, he admits that he really didn't recognize his own relative as the Messiah. But according to Luke chapter 1, verse 36, their mothers were related. So their families must have mingled often during their childhood. Undoubtedly, Elizabeth told her son the story about Mary's visit many times during his childhood. If you remember when Mary announced that she was pregnant to Elizabeth. John the Baptist, who was in her, Elizabeth's womb at the time, leaped in her womb. He was filled with the Spirit from that point. They did not, but he did not recognize his true identity, his relative. He did not not recognize as the Messiah. Jesus Christ, though he was equal with God in every aspect, did not appear on the surface to be an extraordinary man. He was a man among men. He was a Jew, born of a Jewish mother, reared in an obscure, faraway town, away from the center of religious activity, which was Jerusalem. Nevertheless, he was remarkable because he had never sinned. And he was extraordinary because he had a greater understanding of the scripture and spiritual matters than anyone else. Still, he possessed none of the traits that we would expect from the religious leaders of that day. So they didn't know for sure that he was the Messiah. But make, make no mistakes, he was the Word. He was God, the author of truth in human form. However, he, as he stood among his fellow humans, no one really recognized him as that Messiah. No one connected those dots there's many dots in the Old Testament that point toward Christ. But if you lived in the Old Testament, it was difficult to connect those dots. Looking back, it's easy to see. And that was the case here. But let's be honest. 
Today, we have the full revelation of God in printed form, online, on our phones, and yet so many times we fail to acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Savior. So we're not so different from the people of Christ's day. We know from John's, the, the other Gospels that John actually baptized Jesus. But the Apostle John leaves us completely out of his narrative of the Gospel. The incident was undoubtedly well known to John, the Apostle, and his audience who he was writing to. And omitting it from his Gospel serves his purpose. He was describing this scene. He had taken great care to stress that Jesus Christ is superior to all and emphasized the baptizer's role was strictly a witness of that truth. Perhaps this is why we see the phrase baptized with water connected closely to the Greek word oida, which means to know or to recognize. So that baptizing with water, all of a sudden John realized this was the Son of God. This was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And just like light is a classic symbolism for truth, water has long been a symbol for life. And John's baptism in water was mere, symbol was, was mere symbolic of what was yet to come. And it took place in context of spiritual blindness. Not only spiritual blindness among the leaders of Jerusalem, but also those who were coming to him had to be woken up to the truth. So then Jesus, the word, stepped onto the scene, baptizing not only with water, but also with the Holy Spirit, giving us authentic and abundant life, thus proving that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. And the genuine source of truth had finally arrived. He baptizes with eternal life. And there can be no more convincing proof than his true identity than this. And the gospel writer closes the episode as he opens it. And this is the testimony of John the baptizer in verse 34. And I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. John the baptizer said, in effect, Christ is the light. I am the mirror lampstand but we are the holders of that light. The purpose for the lampstand is to hold the light so everyone around it can be illuminated. It adds light to our room. Now, we may be shining brightly for Jesus Christ or not as bright or some days pretty dull, but we're still the holders of the truth. We're still shining that light, and that's what's most important. It's crucial distinction between serving God and ministry. One of the religious authorities in Jerusalem thought that they were the purveyors of the light, but they weren't. They didn't understand. John, however, never forgot his role or his purpose throughout his entire life. And when his time and his ministry was over, God took him off the scene. He refused to allow anyone to overlook the message by focusing on the messenger. And that was what made him an exceptionally extraordinary man among men. And what's our application for today? Well, on the other side of your bulletin insert, I've given us four points that I want us to focus on. We are common people 
with an uncommon message. As I reflected on the witness of John the baptizer, this Elijah-like figure, who was very strange, was calling to Israel from the wilderness. And I observed four truths that are helpful for us today. Each one of us as citizens of God's kingdom doing kingdom work. First, John was extraordinary, but he was only human. The unusual wilderness preacher was remarkable in many aspects, but he rejected most of what his contemporaries would consider as even reasonable comforts for living. This gives us hope that John had the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, and those who are in Christ have that same Holy Spirit dwelling within us. John was given an extraordinary countercultural message. And if you remember back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, how I turned the globe right side up, that's what we're to do to our culture. The culture is upside down now. We're to turn it right side up with God's word, having Christ in us being the light. We have the opportunity to be uncommon men and women because the Lord has given us every advantage that John enjoyed. You could say, well, John was there during Christ's days. But Jesus Christ told us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, I tell you the truth, that of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John the Baptist, but he doesn't leave it there. He says, yet, even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. We have the full revelation of God today. We have more than John could ever have imagined or hoped for. That we have more advantages and more opportunities to tell others of Christ than John the Baptist could even have dreamed about. And although thousands came to him. Second, John was the lamp. He was not the light. He was a voice shouting in the wilderness but he was not the word. While John amassed a large loyal following, he never allowed his admirers to mistake the messenger for the message that he was proclaiming. And that's why it is vital in our ministry here at Putnam. And it doesn't center around a single individual, but we realize that we're all messengers of that message. We may have different functions, but we're one body in Christ and we're all responsible for that message. Third, John was useful, but he was not indispensable. Those who have successful ministries, specifically if they attract large followings, face a particular danger. If they're not careful, they begin to believe their own press. That is, those who give them well-intentioned compliments or encouragement that they receive, it changes to their own basis for their perspective. And it isn't long before they believe that they are indispensable in the Lord's work. But let's face it. Cemeteries are full of people who thought they were indispensable. And fourth, John was effective, but he remained humble. John effectively fulfilled the role for which God called him. And he knew he was successful in completing his task. He knew he had done what God had called him to do. And yet he remained very humble with that. Now, humility does not lead us to feel inferior or doubt our own self-worth. Self-loathing is not a path to humility. And thinking too little of yourself is actually one of the worst forms of pride. On the contrary, humility is seeing ourselves as God sees us. And what are we? 
We're a child of the king. And that's how we should see and view ourselves. But understanding our place in the Lord's plan, giving preference to the welfare of other people over our own self. Primarily, humility recognizes the Lord as the only object that's worthy of worship. Now, John the Baptizer put it succinctly in a message that we'll have in a, in a few weeks out of John chapter 3, verse 30, where he said, he must become greater and greater. I must become less and less. And that's what we want to learn from today's lesson. Let this attitude become our testimony. Those who genuinely are sent from God exalt the one who sent them. And they diminish the one who is sent. And that's our lesson for today from John the Baptizer. Next week, our lesson will be the five guys who followed in faith. And I'd encourage you to read from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51 for next week in preparation for that message. Let us pray. Father, we humbly come before you. We thank you for this example that John the Baptizer gave to us. He shunned all accolades that he could have put upon himself and pointed everyone to Jesus Christ. He was the lamp, but not the light. He was the voice, but not the word. Help us to do the same, Father. Give us the strength and the courage and the wisdom to do so each day of our life. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's Word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek Podcast and Journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously. Lead with integrity and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.